Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Rainer Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. We'll start our episode in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, Analyswift. Do you work in the design and analysis of aerospace structures and materials? If so, Analyswift's innovative engineering software, SwiftComp, may be the solution you're seeking. Used either independently for virtual testing of aerospace composites, or as a plugin to power conventional FEA codes, SwiftComp delivers the accuracy of 3D FEA in seconds instead of hours. A general-purpose multi-scale modeling program, SwiftComp provides an efficient and accurate tool for modeling aerospace structures and materials featuring anisotropy and heterogeneity. Not only does SwiftCom quickly calculate the complete set of effective properties needed for use in macroscopic structural analysis, it also accurately predicts local stresses and strains in the microstructure for predicting strengths. Find out how others in composites are saving time while improving accuracy, designing earlier in the process, and getting to market more quickly. For a free trial, visit AnalysisWift.com. SwiftComp. Right results, right away. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. On this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, I'm speaking to Andrew Dunn, who is an engineer at the satellite company Alba Orbital in Glasgow, Scotland. Alba Orbital is in the business of building pocket cubes, which are miniaturized satellites mainly used for space science, earth imaging, and space exploration. As the name suggests, pocket cubes are pocket-sized, usually around 5 centimeters or 2 inches cubed, and weighing no more than 180 grams. What is more, pocket cubes are typically assembled entirely from commercial, off-the-shelf components, driven mostly by the miniaturization of smartphone electronics, and this makes pocket cubes an ideal, low-cost testbed for university labs and smaller startup companies. Traditional satellites of the last decades often took so long to develop that by the time they were launched into space, the technology was already out of date. Furthermore, their large size increased launch costs and most components were one-off designs that made them too expensive but for the largest companies. Alba Orbital is currently developing the Unicorn 2 Pocket Cube platform, which is a modular design that can host different payloads such as optical equipment, deployable antennas, or a radio module, but is built on a foundation of integrated electronics that can serve any need. In this episode, Andrew and I talk about the unique features of Pocket Cubes their components and how they're manufactured, and Alba Orbital's future plans for the Unicorn 2 platform. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Dunn. 
Andrew, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you're currently an engineer at Alba Orbital in Glasgow in Scotland. Um, and before we start talking about the details of your work, could you tell me about Alba Orbital's submission? So how did the company get started and uh, why was it founded in the first place? Um, Alba Orbital was founded about five years ago by a friend of Tom Walkinshaw. Um, he, he started it based, up, from what I understand, he started it based on like, um, it's a really good interest in, in the space industry and it's quite really difficult to get into the space industry at the moment. It's basically like um, you either get, you know someone or you just start your own business. So it's one of those scary things, you just, you just set it up. Um, so that's kind of the reason why I joined as well. And uh, what what is it? So the, what is the kind of mission of of Alba at at the moment? What is it? What is kind of like the value that you're trying to bring to the to the space market? Well, what we are trying to bring is, or we're trying to democratize uh, space, um, because the, the the reason one of the issues is, um, it can be quite expensive to do anything regarding space industry, um. So we develop pocket cubes, which are like really lightweight satellites. So this would allow uh, hobbyists, academics, even small companies and organizations to get involved in space. Um, not just like in terms of like having an interest, but even having an impact. You, you could use these kind of systems for um, research and data acquisition and planning for like um, resources stuff like that, tracking your craft. So that's what we're kind of like aiming to do is to try and help bring the cost down and make space more accessible. Um, because I would say me personally, um, a lot of the technologies that we use for take for granted in Earth were developed for space. So that's what personally me and Albert are really interested in is advancing the technology in space. So could you give me, so you just mentioned pocket cubes, and when I think of, you know, a satellite, I'm kind of thinking, well, something, you know, the size of a bus, perhaps, you know, the size of the Hubble telescope, but that's not what ALBA is is working on. So can you describe, perhaps, you know, what the size is of a pot, pocket cube and what goes into a, a pocket cube? What are the kind of fundamental pieces that make up a, a pocket cube? So I don't have an example here in my house, but... For, for Unicorn 2, which is a 3P, um, so pocket cubes, they have like a, a, a dimension which is like 50 mil, millimetres by 50 millimetres um, by 50 millimetres, that's 1P, and ours is like a, a 3P, so the Unicorn 2 is a, a 3P satellite, so it's about 50 by 50 by about 190 millimetres. So the, the best way to understand that in like layman's terms, it's more like you've got like a 500 uh, milliliter bottle of coke. That's how that's how big the satellites are. Um, mass wise, it's like less than a kilogram, so it's like um, 750 grams. What we are doing currently for the Unicorn 2 is to put a uh, imaging, uh, so basically a camera lens to try and do some uh, night imaging for basically just taking pictures in the evenings of the earth so you can kind of see what happens with the lights. Um, 
you could the main components that we have is that you've got the wings which you hold the solar panel generate electricity then you have the payload which takes up about uh, almost well, just just about half the satellite and then you've got like the radio um, batteries your electronics um, we've also got an active pointing system so you have a reaction fuel and magnet torquers and I'll try and make it as simple as possible. Basically, the satellite will turn based on activating these magnet torques, which are basically just electromagnets and they, they react with the uh, magnetic field of the of the Earth. Then you have basically um, reaction wheels, which finally tune the pointing. Um, that will give us the accuracy of 10 degrees. Um, so the way the reaction fuels would work is you spin the reaction fuels and I'll actually make the satellite turn again to the opposite direction. So it's just so using momentum. Interesting. And wh why is it that, I mean, if I kind of again think back to the, the big satellites, um, when uh, to build, to be able to build a satellite that is, you know, the size of a bus, it takes, you know, significant investment, it takes quite a lot of time. And then once the pocket of the, the, the big satellite is up in space, it's kind of, you know, it's up there for a couple of years. So that maybe at the end of its lifetime, 10 years later, the technology has completely moved on. So I'm, I'm, I guess I can see that in terms of the pocket cube, one of the big advantages is, is that you can just get the technology of today on one of these small satellites, shoot it up and then use it forever what you want to use it for. But why is this all of a sudden possible now? Why wasn't it possible, let's say, 20 years ago to build these small pocket cubes? What has enabled the technology to mature? I think it's mainly, I, I don't know 100% why it happened, but um, there's a bigger class of satellites called CubeSats, which are um, um, 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. So basically, the pocket cubes are kind of like the smaller brother of the CubeSat. And I think it was just more like a need to get more access. It was uh, these two standards were developed by a professor in the US called uh, Bob Twiggs. Um, so it was more like I think it is now um, maybe like electronics has got a bit more easier, it's got smaller. Um, honestly, if you actually look at some of the technology, especially in uh, electronics, but 20 years ago they were quite big. I mean, look at mobile phones. 20 years ago they were all like massive, and now nowadays they're miniaturized. So it's kind of going to that kind of level now that as electronics improves and you can make a system smaller. Uh, one of the good things you mentioned about with pocket cubes and cubesats is basically you can speed up development. Because uh, the problem is, when you've got these big satellites at the Hubble Telescope, like, they're massive and they cost multi million pounds and they take years to develop. Not there's not a lot of risk involved in terms of using trying new things because if you want to try something new, you can do all the tests in the in the world. But the problem is, space is so difficult that if you went and built something with completely brand new technologies, there's a big massive risk. And honestly, you would not get funding from anyone if you went and built a multi-million pound satellite with trying new, new different technologies and materials just to hope it works in space. Cause, and that's the benefit of these small eco-satellites and micro-satellites. You can speed up development. You can go, right, 
I'm going to try this new gizmo, this gadget, or whatever, or this new material, this joint material, whatever. You put it in space, you, you analyse what it's doing. If it doesn't work, well, yeah, it sucks. But the thing is, though, you haven't trashed a multi-million pound satellite. You, you spent, like, um, hundreds of thousands. Um, another reason why these are getting a bit more access now is the privatisation of launch vehicles. Um, it used to be you'd have like um, NASA, um, the, the Russian variant, and like, um, Israel from uh, India, and JAXA as well from Japan. So you've got all these big nations that would they would be public funded. Now you're like seeing companies like SpaceX, and Blue Origin, all these private companies starting to pop up, which has actually helped driving uh, more for like um, commercialising space. This is why you kind of start to see a lot more of these smaller companies in space popping up nowadays, which you wouldn't have seen like 20 years ago. So I think it's about a balance, not just technology-wise, but even like financial. I mean, if you went to someone and asked, oh, I need like 20 million pounds to start my space company, honestly, you'd be told to get lost by investors. Mm. But nowadays, because things are getting easier and more accessible, it becomes a lot more attractive to invest than to try out now. Right. So it sounds like it's a combination of, of many factors. And one, on one hand, you've got technology improving in terms of the, the electronics, perhaps driven by the smartphone to some degree. And then, yeah, I guess there's now a business case to launch smaller satellites for constellations, internet constellations to, to beam internet to the to the earth, for example. So I guess there's more funding available as well. And then the third component that you mentioned is, of course, the launch capability. Um, so I, I was wondering, how do you actually go uh, about designing these pocket cubes for the for your customers? So I've read online that you're you're developing a Unicorn 2 platform. And platform, to me, sounds like it's one modular design that can be adapted to different customers. So can you give a little bit more background of how you actually go about designing these? Do you, do you tailor the design of each pocket cube specifically to every individual customer, or is it more of a plug-and-play um, platform, basically? I think, to be honest, it's more like you have the basic platform with its basic capabilities. So what we are doing is we're developing the first model, the Unicorn 2A, which is going to get launched um, by in the US. So. Once that's qualified, it would be like, say, for example, um, a customer came along and said, I want to put um, like a tracker for it to track aircraft or ships or something, or you wanted to have a, um, have an imaging or communications like better like radios or, or whatever, whatever you want. It'd just be like, okay, we'll modify the design based on what you need. But what we're basically doing is we're designing the basic platform so that um, it would be a much, much quicker and easier to design and uh, assemble and integrate because you don't want to design something from, from scratch all the time. So it's more like we design the satellite in such a way that it can be modified to our customers. So I would, it's more like probably towards the plug-and-play. Right. And do when you manufacture the, the, the pocket cubes, I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine... What it what this what it looks like to be manufacturing pocket cubes? Do you still require these you know big sterile clean rooms, or is it more kind of like a you know a, a classic soldering operation where you where you have some 
some fundamental components and then you yourself are soldering them uh, together in a, in a workshop? I'd say it depends on the components. Like you would want them lab controlled. Um, for example, um, optics, like you wouldn't want anything to interfere with that. Um, a lot of, a lot, in terms of the manufacturing, uh, a lot of our stuff is basically being used for the automotive industry. So like stainless steel. So it isn't like super advanced um, processes we're using. It's more like um, sheet metal work. Um, we're also like doing 3D printed parts as well because because they're quite small. Um, when you start, this is the big challenge is when you're miniaturizing something, um, not just electronics wise, but mechanically, it becomes much more uh, expensive when you want to make smaller parts because you need to uh, ha have access to more expensive equipment and machinery. So this is why um, I would say additive manufacturing routes like 3D printing is going to be a big thing. And this is going to help um, the space industry as well. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of your your day to day, I'm sure that many engineers will be listening to, to, to the podcast are thinking, well, what is it like to, to work for, you know, a, a pocket cube or a, a, a space company? What is it that you specifically do on a day to day basis? Are you a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer? And then what is the what is the work involved that you do on a day to day basis? So I'm like the mechanical engineer on the team. So I do the main structures of the satellite and the deployer and it's also like the deployment mechanism so the wings of the solar panel you store it um, and release it also all any fixtures and fixings of each part so it does require a lot of uh, simulation work and CAD work but there is a lot of hands-on work because you've got to try things um, my work's more like more involved in early prototyping. Um, me personally, I'm not into relying on simulations all the time. I think the best way for anyone who works in the, the satellite company, especially pocket cubes or any startup, is you should learn to get into the mindset of failing quick. And what I mean is basically, you come up with a design, you don't put too much time and try to finalize everything. You want to try and test every component as you design it so that you can actually speed up the design process. Because um, the last thing you want to do is do all the simulations, do all the nice uh, CAD work, and then it's just basically none of it works. So especially like what I do is take each subsystem individually and then test them out mechanic-wise and then put them all together. Right now, I'm basically doing simulations work on our deployment mechanisms, um, also starting to support other um, departments so I work with the radio key, the, the guys who do the radio and electronics, like how do I hold this to the satellite? How do I assemble this to the satellite? So my work's quite a lot varied. Um, it, I'm also almost like my own self-contained department as well, because the best way to describe how like um, building a pocket cube is basically you're building a mobile phone. To be honest, that's what it's basically like. So in terms of mechanical, you do kind of can get a bit more freedom. Like you're a bit, you, you kind of can float around the different teams, which is quite good. Um, I'm also involved in doing the systems layout as well. So where, where does the parts go? What parts do they go? And um, what's the mass budget? Um, 
can this fit? Is this going to exceed the mass? Um, what, what will interfere with what? So it's quite good where I'm getting involved with different departments because you get a bit more knowledge as well. Um, you start to learn a bit more about materials. What, how is this going to interfere with that? So for example, some of the components have to design for the ADCS system. It has to be non-magnetic, so there's that kind of challenge as well. You've got to make sure it's strong, but it doesn't interfere with the pointing system. Uh, me personally, there isn't a rule book in terms of pocket tubes, so this is why I'm always emphasising you need to try things, because basically what I'm doing is nobody knows what to Nobody's really done the scale what we've done before, so it's quite good, but it's also really challenging at the same time because it's not as if you can go and say, well, who did X, Y, Z did? And you've got to figure it out yourself. So I would say for any mechanical engineers or engineers in general in the space industry, is it's going to be challenging, but it's quite fun as well. You're doing something that's interesting. So I wouldn't take that as a, a negative. It's more like this is what you've got to get. It's something you want to do in the future. I mean, who doesn't want to work in space? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking in terms of the ch the, the challenges, and, I, and and you mentioned earlier on in the conversation that, of course, putting anything up into space is is really really hard. Um, can you describe or explain a little bit more in detail of why it's hard in the first place? Like, why is it hard to build a, or design a pocket cube? Um, like. One of the, some of the challenges is, is like financial challenges. So, because you're miniaturizing parts, you got to think differently. Um, you're con you're tightly constrained as well. Like you don't have the freedom of uh, weight and size. So, every gram's a prisoner when you're designing a satellite. So you got to make sure you got to have the balance right. Is it lightweight but strong? Because you got to do rigorous environmental testing. Um, one thing you also got to do is make things as simple as possible. A lot of people seem to think that in space it's all like like high tech stuff. It's actually really simple. Like if you look at any satellite designs, they're really basic in terms of mechanism design because once it's up there, like you can't fix it. Like that's the thing. It's got to sit there and it's got to be. You got to design it for thermal. So massive heat fluctuations and vacuum so you've got to learn stuff about outgassing so when you put something in a vacuum it releases a gas so, so you've got to have these kind of things involved and i would also say to engineers you got you can't sit there and be focusing on your own work so when you're building something like a pocket cube everything will affect something so you could be designing a radio and it could affect the ADCS guy or the electronics guys. So you could be, me mechanically, I could affect everyone else. Like I could either affect the floor, uh, amount of room someone's got or um, if I make it too heavy one side, then that affects the pointing because then the centre of gravity is shifted. So it's not just like technicals also, like you've got to be able to have really good um, communication skills and able to like willing to take all crop uh, compromises because that's the one of the, another big uh, issue with um, satellites is you got to learn how to compromise on things like mass size power whatever and um, because it all needs to work so it's i'd say one of the awesome main things is teamwork and like you've got to be able to talk to each other a lot 
Right. Yeah. It seems like a lot of complexity that basically it comes together, lots of different moving parts and you got to get the engineering right and you yeah, have to get the team working right. Yeah. It sounds quite complex. I was just thinking when you relate, when you talked about uh, being able to iterate quickly, so not perfecting your design on the computer and then testing afterwards and then finding out that it didn't actually work. So when you have such a complex um, or difficult environment up in space where you have vacuum, where you, perhaps you have incredibly high thermal gradients where on one side you're in the shade and on the other side you're in direct sunlight, how do you actually go about validating that? Um, and especially, as you said, you want to iterate quickly. So how do you do these comp like these tests, which must be, much be, must be quite hard to do? How do you do that quickly to be able to iterate? Um, the, be the best way, like me personally, how I done it was um, one of the things I work on is like the deployer. So I designed a really basic deployer with the main mechanisms. And when I got it built, I started to realize there was a lot of things in the design that I missed out and overlooked. So one of the best ways is just do a fit check. That's one of the first things you want to do is like, does it fit? Is there anything enough for each other? And then you just keep getting quicker and quicker and quicker how you do it, because you start to get a better, better understand where, where to look for. Um, to validate your system, like you've got, there's quite a lot of tests you need to do which is what the launch vehicle people tell you. They'll tell you, right, here's the vibration, here's the shock, here's, um, there's different types of vibrations that could be uh, like um, random as well. Uh, shock is just basically you attach something to a jig and you drop a hammer on it. That's what it's basically, well, well, not, not the hammer basically on the part, but the hammer on the jig. So, um, will it come loose? So, that's one thing that was quite good with um, the launch vehicles. They will tell you what standards you need to do, and then basically you find out what testing you need to do. And um, thermal is another thing where basically you can put it in a vacuum furnace and try and do bakeouts, and you just see does it jam and heat. Um, so one way to make iterations really quick is just make the design simple. Honestly, like putting redundancies. So if, for example, have two springs for the hinge, so in case one fails, it's going to actuate still with the, the secondary hinge. Um, release mechanisms, you have two release mechanisms. If one, if the primary fails, the secondary will take control. So these kind of things, just, I would say just make it simple. I mean, that's what the, the good thing about doing space is just basically needs to be simple. Um, I try to once use springs as a, as a hinge for the solar panels and then I've found out that having magnetic materials would actually affect the point system so what actually happened is if we actually went through the testing and put it in space if the ADCS went on or it went live basically the solar panels instead of going out we start going in back towards the <laughs> <laughs> things you got to watch out for um, this is why the best way to help out with your iterations to do regular like um, system layout meetings. I went to um, like regular like up to date meetings, which is basically people saying I did this, I did that. Should be like, what does your system do in terms of the satellite? What did you? It's good to like because then everyone knows how to make sure the satellites are up to date, the designs are up to date. Um, 
I think another thing is try and get as, off the, as many off-the-shelf parts as possible. If you've got used things that are off-the-shelf, then you don't need to worry about designing things and testing things. Um, that's another challenge as well in itself, is a lot of stuff that's built for space is really expensive. So if you're a student or a startup, you, you start and you start to think about a bit more imaginative about how to design things. So that's why I mentioned earlier about the automotive industry. There's quite a lot of stuff in the automotive industry that's really useful for pocket cubes. Right. Um, so looking at the kind of broader picture of perhaps what's going on in Glasgow at the moment, it looks like, I mean, I'm in, in Bristol in England and I'm kind of, you know, hearing in the news all the time that Glasgow is building more satellites than any other uh, city in, in, in Europe. Um, you, now they're, they're, the UK government has decided that they're, they, they want to build a, a, a launch a launch pad basically in, in, in Scotland. So wh- why do you think Scotland is basically almost becoming yeah the the heart of almost the European space industry and how do you see kind of Alba interacting with perhaps launchers like would you or would you be interested in then kind of using the uh, the UK launch facilities or what, what is what, what is your opinion kind of in terms of the overall um, UK space industry? I think we like Glasgow is Glasgow's always had a history in engineering. It used to be like massive in the shipbuilding, but personally, I'm not 100 sure how it got to that stage. Where it is, um, I mean, when I joined Alba, I didn't even know that it built that many satellites. I knew it. I heard of Clyde Space um, well, a couple of years ago, but I didn't know where we had Clyde Space. You'd Spire, and you've got. Um, uh, Alborable, and you've also got these smaller other companies that are actually involved in the space industry as well. That is actually a lot bigger than we think. Um, the in terms of the launch facility, um, I haven't looked into it much to be honest, not personally. But I think um, I would see Alba using it if there was um, companies with launch people using it, and I don't think it's like. We can't really say, oh, we'll use it, but it need, we need to have um, the infrastructure in place for um, launch facilities for um, companies like Vector or Skyrover or SpaceX or whoever using it. It just depends. Um, I think, personally, this is what needs to be a big challenge. I think the Scottish government and the UK government needs to like, put a lot of funding and effort in the space industry because this is what's going to be in the future um, and this could actually bring in a lot more revenue in the country and it would help boost um, high value manufacturing. So this is what the good thing is about the space is it's high value. It might not be like um, high volume, but is what the, the automotive, but highly skilled jobs as well. It'll create, um, it's also one thing that seems to be that with Clyde Space, it kind of like you know, success breeds success as well. So as Glasgow got more and more prominent, it's getting a lot more bigger, and um, which I hope it can continue. And I think it will. Um, I could see potentially like Albert maybe getting involved in with other um, yeah, uh, organisations. I mean, we, we do we have been involved with to Delft in the Netherlands and Gauss and Italy developing the mechanical stru- uh, standard for pocket cubes. So 
I would see that growing as well. We're not just going to be like working alongside like local, but we'll also be like uh, working with international organisations as well. So I can see that a big future in Scotland as well and the rest of the UK. Right. And so um, how do you then see, so you're currently working on the Unicorn 2 platform. How do you see that work continuing on from here? And what are kind of like the, the near-term plans um, that you guys have? So the near-term plans, obviously, is to get it finished and tested. Uh, then have, have it launched, the Unicorn 2 with Vector, which will be launched in the Kodiak island in uh, Alaska. So basically, be like launch the satellite, find out what it was done, uh, its performance, and we'll able to like talk to it from our ground station. Basically, let it learn the lessons of the Unicorn 2A, and then start to look at ways to improve the satellite. Whether it's make it make parts lighter, make it um, make it cheaper, whatever. Um, start that will actually help start and kickstart interest in uh, the Unicorn 2A platform. Because uh, that's one thing, you, uh, once we get space heritage out of that, that's when Albert Robert will properly pick up. Uh, but we're also developing the uh, deployer, so, which is basically where you, what you put in the satellite. It's just basically like a jack-in-the-box, if you've kind of seen the videos on uh, social media that we've published. Um, we're, we're selling launches with them, so we're selling launches with other PocketCube developers, so it's not as if we don't just build the satellites, but also develop for us involved with the launch as well. Right. Okay. So, um, just as a final question, um, how can listeners keep up to date with uh, what you guys are doing? Is there any social media feeds that they can follow, or, or your website? What is the best place to keep up to date? We, we tend to be very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So. We do have a Facebook page, but I don't use Facebook, so I don't know how to picture it's up to date all the time, so you can try the Facebook. Um, but I would say Twitter and LinkedIn for the two main areas. Great. I'll put those links in the show notes. Well, Andrew, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you um, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. If you'd like to learn more about Alba Orbital and Pocket Cubes, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast where you'll find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon, where patrons receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and talk to you next time.